Good morning again. How um, how many of you, just by show of hands, have ever seen the movie The Sixth Sense? Just most of us. Um, it's it's a it's over twenty years old, so I'm gonna I'm gonna spoil the end for you. I'm sorry, but I mean, if, if this if you haven't seen it, by it's kind of your fault by this time, right? It's but it's it's <laughs> but I, I'm gonna. Basically, without without getting into too much of it, you, you find something out at the end of it that it just changes the whole thing. It's it's a movie about a, a little boy who sees dead people, and there's a child psychologist that comes to help him. And long story, very short, you find out at the end of the movie, right at the end, that the child psychologist was dead the whole time. He was a ghost. And if if you're watching the movie, it, it's it's an amazing. It's one of the best. Reveals at that time was one of the best reveals in cinema. It, it, once you realize that, it changes the entire movie. It changes the way you see the whole thing. The, the big reveal forces you then to watch the movie again and with that piece of information to rethink what you saw. Uh, in fact, if you try to watch the movie after that, ignoring that big reveal, the story would never have its intended effect. It just would not be the same movie at all, not the same story at all. In in very much the same way, the gospel that Paul proclaims forces us, just as it would have forced the Galatian believers to, to rethink everything, including everything we have read up to this point in the Bible. And Rod Rosenblatt says that Paul has one argument in the book of Galatians, and he goes at it six ways from Sunday. That's, that's a, a great way to look at it, because nothing matters more than the gospel, right? And I know, I, I understand that it might seem at a glance like Paul and I are beating a dead horse sometimes at this point, but we, we need to fight the urge to tune it out. The Holy Spirit of God moved Paul to push this same argument again and again and again. And we need faith to believe that that's precisely what we need. We need to hear this argument and the different ways that he goes at it and the different ways he is trying to make his point, even though it's a singular point. We need it. This is life and death. Literally, this is life and death. Every verse of Galatians is life and death. And from 3.1, where we are this morning, to 4.11, those verses contain the center of the argument that Paul will make to prove his thesis, that by faith alone in Jesus Christ, all those who believe are completely justified, made right with God, are completely forgiven and righteous, and are completely apart of God's people. He'll argue that in three ways. From 3, 1 to 5, he will show that the presence of the Holy Spirit in each of the Galatian believers is proof that his thesis is true. In verses 6 through 14 of chapter 3, he will show that the testimony of Scripture is proof that his thesis is true. That's what we'll cover this week. And then finally, in 3.15 to 4.11, which we'll look at probably over the next two weeks or so, Paul will show that the covenants... God has made with his people prove that his thesis is true. If we attempt 
to make ourselves right with God through our obedience, we will die. We'll die. And so if you're able, would you stand with me as we read from Galatians chapter 3. I'll just read, again, we're going to work down through 14, but I'll read 1 through 6 this morning. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Let's pray. Father, by the power of Your Holy Spirit, may Your Son open our minds to understand the Scriptures this morning, that all might embrace Him by grace through faith, Overcome everything about me, God, that would get in the way of that and speak through me. Father, I pray and I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And you may be seated, everyone. Paul addresses the believers directly now and he calls them foolish. Someone has bewitched them. That's a word for when someone has cast a spell on you using black magic. Right? Those who would force the old covenant on people were like evil magicians to Paul. And Paul says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. What's the implication in that statement? The death of Jesus Christ, that is, all that He accomplished at Calvary, is completely sufficient to make you righteous. Jesus is enough for you to be justified before God. Why are you so foolishly allowing yourselves to be bewitched by this teaching that says there is more you need to do in order to actually be justified? We, what we see here has always been true of us. We will always latch on to any teaching that feeds this instinctive, natural belief that we have from Adam that we have the ability to gain God's favor, to win Him back, to win paradise back by obeying the law, by doing the right things. What Paul reveals is that thinking that way is equal to acting as though Christ was never crucified. It's not neutral, and it isn't just something that really serious Christians care about. It is the same thing as saying Jesus Christ has not been crucified, since that is the only actual means to righteousness. They had seen Christ crucified in Paul's preaching. That was the substance of his gospel. That's all they needed. But not only are they now foolishly overestimating their ability to obey God's law, they are foolishly forgetting what time it was in redemptive history. So Paul reminds them that they've received the promised end-time gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the first way he argues to convince them that they've been made right with God through Christ alone. Look at verse 2. Let me ask you only this, because this question will settle it, is, is what he's saying. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Again, because the answer to that will prove 
what time it is in redemptive history. The end-time gift of the Holy Spirit was promised throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 32, 14 to 16, Isaiah 44, 3, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, Joel 2, 27 to 29, among others. And those promises had come to fulfillment at Pentecost, way back in Acts chapter 2, and the Galatians, as the gospel spread, had become recipients of that very same gift through faith, because they believed. Receiving the Holy Spirit proves not only that they've been made right with God through faith, that's why He's given them the Spirit, but also that the new age has indeed begun. That's His argument here. Why do you have the Holy Spirit? He's asking them. And he answers, because you've actually been made right with God through faith in Christ. So the Holy Spirit, Paul's point is that the Holy Spirit is now the sign that a person belongs to the people of God, not circumcision. 1 Corinthians 2.12, Romans 5.5, Romans 8.9. Paul is all over this. The new age is here. And if it's here, he's saying, What outlandish foolishness it is to return to the old age where law and circumcision are what marked a person out as a part of God's covenant people. Look at verse 3. Are you so foolish? Again, you're never going to see Paul more passionate than you see him here. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? By attempting to obey the law? This is massive here. The flesh is our old person, who we are in Adam. It means human effort. So he's saying, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected, sanctified by human effort? Now, is there anyone that doesn't naturally think that's what Christianity is? That God gets you in the house, you get saved, He gets you in the door, then the rest is up to you. By your commitment level, your discipline, your behavior. Yes, I'm saved by grace, but I have to try my best now to honor God with my life, or I might prove that I never really believed in the first place. The Bible is cutting the head off of that right here. Yet we don't even question it really. We we just think that's the way it is. That's the way it works. That's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. Are you relying, Paul is asking them through the Holy Spirit, he is asking us, are we relying on the person we were in Adam to make us right with God? Or are we relying on Christ who has made us righteous by faith to make us right with God? To rely on our own effort is to deny the whole point of the crucifixion of Jesus. Again, These are the things that are at stake in how we think about how we become righteous. It's to deny that we needed Jesus to rise from the dead for us if we think we can perfect ourselves through our obedience. The Galatians have been so bewitched by these false teachers that they're going backwards towards human effort in order to be made right with God. It's bewitching, right? It's like, it's like casting a spell. And and we buy it. We love it. They're going back to the old age when they do that. How foolish can they be? Paul is asking. And he says in verse 4, You even endured suffering for originally claiming that Christ alone was enough. Did you do that all for nothing? Why did you put up with that if you were just going to go back to the law? 
We cannot be perfected by human effort. Our flesh cannot get us saved, and our flesh cannot keep us saved. We live by the Spirit, or we will never be righteous. Right? Paul, you could say that Paul had one note he was singing in everything that he wrote, and he just went at it different ways. In Romans 7.18, Paul wrote, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. He wrote that as a Spirit-filled New Covenant believer. I have the desire to do what is right. It's there. I don't have the ability to carry it out. Paul again in Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh, even if our minds are set on the flesh to make us right with God, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's not neutral. It's hostile to God. It's hostile to Jesus Christ for righteousness. To, to insist that by our flesh we can be made right with Him that we can actually obey the law, when the Bible tells us we can't obey the law. For the flesh does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It can't. So it's not the case that a person is initially justified by faith, but then grows in holiness, is sanctified by human effort to obey the law. That's not true. No wonder we're so tired Right? And, and so doubtful so often. The law makes nothing perfect. It is not how we are perfected. By a single sacrifice, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hebrews 10, 14. You see what Jesus has done for us at the cross. The law is not where the believer looks to know whether or not he or she is righteous. It's not that we believe the gospel just to get justified, but then we're sanctified by obeying biblical principles or applying them. That misses the very point of the whole Christ, of everything that Christ came to accomplish for us. Not just forgiveness, but also righteousness. The Spirit does that in us, not the law, not human effort. Why would one revert to the works of the law for sanctification if they are insufficient for justification? Go verse 5. Does he who see these questions? He's, he's wanting them to think for themselves. Do you, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Why had God supplied the Spirit in Galatia? Was it because they continued to try to obey the law? And as they got more spiritual and more mature, He blessed them for their effort and gave more and more of the Spirit? No. No. He supplied the Spirit and worked miracles among them because they believed His Word that Christ is enough to make them righteous. He is enough to make us completely right with God. Just as, in verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
if these Gentile believers were made right with God through faith alone in Christ, there's a certain specific unavoidable implication that Paul now brings in to his argument. Paul introduces this, and it's absolutely revolutionary. Those who are of faith, who believe in Christ for salvation, are the actual descendants of Abraham. That should change the way we read our Bibles. We just found out that Bruce Willis was dead the whole movie. That's what we just found out. We find out here by the way Paul argues that these Judaizers must have been appealing to Abraham as a model of law-keeping in their arguments. And we cannot, that, that's understandable. That's how Abraham was portrayed in most of the Jewish literature that was written in the time period that passed between Malachi and Matthew. They argued that God blessed Abraham because he was obedient apart from his faith because of verses like Genesis 26.5 that do emphasize how Abraham did often obey They said Abraham was keeping the law even before the law was given on Sinai. That's literally what they were saying. But on the issue of how a person is actually made right with God, Paul emphasizes his faith, not his obedience. There's only one way of salvation, whether we're in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It's faith. Abraham believed God and it, faith, was counted to him. God just counted it as righteousness. Notice that Abraham's obedience was not counted as the righteousness through which God accepted him. So that righteousness is not the righteousness through which God accepts us. Abraham's faith is what God counted as Abraham's righteousness. That is clear in Genesis uh, when the miraculous birth of Abraham's son, the ceremony when God passed through the animals and back through them while Abraham was sleeping. So verse 6 infers verse 7. Since Abraham was counted righteous because of his faith, know then. This is a new line in the argument, a new implication. Know then that his true children are those of Faith. Now that needs to challenge, at the very least, the tight distinction we tend to draw between the church and Israel. And we'll see that again and again and again in Galatians because it matters. We see it in texts like Romans 2, 28 and 29. We see it in Philippians 3, 3. One of the crucial points Paul wants to make in Galatians is that there is no such distinction because it damages the church to think there is. So we say, well, yeah, but this only has to do with salvation. Beloved, salvation is everything in the Bible. Watch Paul's argument here. God counting something to us that we did not possess is the sign that justification has come. He counts us as righteous. He gives us His Spirit. See, God is doing Everything here. Faith and belief, therefore, are interchangeable in this passage. Why does God give the Spirit? Because we believe. We have faith. And this is the sign that we're in a new age. Right? It's a new age. The new era brought by Christ that began when He rose from the dead. Therefore, 
Paul is beginning to make this massive point to us that those old distinctions, those old markers, they no longer exist. The substance to which they all pointed is now here. Now we're understanding how God is going to fulfill His promises. So Paul specifies the implications of that here. He's saying, in light of what I'm saying here, it's Paul talking, then who are the actual sons of Abraham? Who are his descendants? Because if if it's not determined by circumcision, it's not determined by ethnicity. Who are God's people then? Those who have faith in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, period. Now that Christ has come, all the truth is being revealed. That's why Jesus has to open their minds in Luke 24 to understand the Scriptures. Because you couldn't completely understand them before He came and explained them. Right? The ultimate purpose of everything God has ever said or done is now becoming clear. It is faith. It's always been faith, ultimately. Not circumcision, not ethnicity. Those things were signs. Faith reveals who God's true people are. The question then of who it is that is made right with God and who Abraham's true descendants are, they both have the same answer. And only those of faith. Those who are justified and the true people of God are one and the same. Thus saith the Lord. Listen to Paul talk about this very same thing in Ephesians 2. Begin at verse 19. Listen to the way he writes. For through Him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you, these Gentile Christians in Ephesus, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The household. There's one household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, there's one, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery, see it's been a mystery, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. That's Paul. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. That's Paul in Ephesians. And Paul is working with that same theme here in verses 8 and 9 as we read, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, see him personify God's Word, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. That's the Gospel. So then, those who are of faith, again, reiterating, So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Beloved, this text is fascinating. 
It's a fascinating text. Paul is revealing things that had been hidden until he came along. Mysteries. And the point here in 8 and 9 is the same as it was in verse 7. Those of faith are the ones blessed with Abraham. But now Paul is trying to show, he's saying, listen, this is not a departure from the original plan. This has always been the plan. This very gospel Paul has preached to the Galatians had been preached to Abraham when God made a covenant with him. That precisely is what is coming to fulfillment now. With the resurrection of Jesus, the age in which the promise would be kept has arrived. God promised Abraham a global family of descendants. That promise is coming to fruition through Jesus Christ. Listen to Paul again in Romans 15, 8 and 12, 8 to 12. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jewish people, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him all the Gentiles Hope. In that text, Paul quoted from 2 Samuel 22.50, Psalm 18.49, Deuteronomy 32.43, Psalm 117.1, and Isaiah Isaiah 11 verse 10. Meaning, the whole Old Testament testifies to the fact that the Gentiles have always been meant to receive God's original promise to Abraham, and their salvation is their inclusion in that plan. The gospel Paul preached, justification by faith, becoming the true people of God through faith, was the same gospel the scripture itself preached all the way back in Genesis 12, 1 through 8. All nations will be blessed through Abraham. We find out through Paul that this happens. The blessing comes through justification by faith. That's how. Through the gospel. That's what Genesis preached. That's always been the plan. And as B.B. Warfield said, what Scripture says, God says. So Paul's argument is, Scripture, foreseeing justification by faith, seeing that that was how God would fulfill this promise, preached the gospel beforehand, before it happened, to Abraham. The fact that the false teachers pushed circumcision to identify the people of God proves that they've not interpreted the Bible correctly because they've interpreted it ethnically. Faith takes hold of the promise to Abraham and receives its blessing. Nothing else. Look at 10 through 12. For, for, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather the one who does them shall live by them. Paul is a technician. He argues for things. He's so sharp. 
So the consequences of not having faith in Christ alone to justify us, they're fatal. Right? Again, remember, the Galatian believers are not denying that you needed Jesus. The false teachers are not denying that you needed Jesus. They're saying that in order to truly be God's people, you need to be circumcised. And in order to truly be righteous, you need to obey the law. So Paul is arguing, look, you're going to die if you think that. Right? That's his argument here. It's life and death. The opposite of not having faith in Christ by Paul's reckoning is relying instead on obedience to the law to make us right with God. We tend to think of the opposite of faith as immorality, not Paul. Paul calls the opposite of faith a desire to earn God's acceptance through our works. That's troubling and is meant to be. So there are those of faith, verse 7, and then there are those who, all who rely on the works of the law, verse 10, right? Two groups of people, and all who rely on the works of the law, that is, all that the law commands, that's what the works of the law means, they're under a curse in verse 10, because God says they're under a curse. Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 27, 26. These false teachers have been appealing to the Old Testament. It's what we know, by the way, Paul argues to toughen up their argument. So they appeal to the Old Testament, and Paul is showing they incorrectly interpret the Scriptures. Jesus is not illuminating the Scripture for them. They would say He's their Savior. They would not say He explains the Scripture. If we try to interpret any portion of the Bible, here's what Paul is teaching us. If we try to interpret any portion of the Bible without taking into account the weight the Gospel has brought to bear on everything, the big reveal, we're guaranteed to be incorrect. We're guaranteed to get it wrong. The same scriptures they're appealing to in order to get people to follow the law are the very scriptures that are going to curse everyone trying to follow the law. What's evident because of Old Testament scripture, what's evident is that no one is justified before God by the law in verse 11. What makes that so evident or obvious is, as Paul has already made clear with Peter, that scene with Peter is that everyone knows that no one does or abides by all the things in the law, especially Old Covenant Jewish people like these false teachers. Everyone disobeys the law, at least somewhere, and therefore breaks all of it according to God. But what is also evident according to Paul in this text is that no one is justified by God or by doing the works of the law, because that's not the way God works. That's also coming out here and is also clear. Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4 to show that the righteous, those that God accepts, they are those who live by faith. It's always been there. It's always been there. God counts faith as righteousness, not works as righteousness, through which He will accept us. So it's also evident that no one is justified before God by the law because the law is not of faith. And faith is the only thing that God accepts. Law and faith are two different categories. They have two different purposes in the plan of God. Both are from God. Both are holy and righteous and good. But they have two different functions. The law does not call people to trust in the obedience of another on their behalf. 
which is what saves you. Law calls people to do, to earn, by obeying its commands. So what does the law do? It calls people, it forces people to have to trust for acceptance in their own obedience. The minute you step out of the gospel into the law, that's the realm you're in. I have to earn it or I die. Any part of it, any command, any command, that's what you're doing. If I don't keep this thing, I die. Right? That's the truth. The law does not give. The law demands. Law and faith are two mutually exclusive means of righteousness. Meaning, in Paul's argument, the law cannot provide the blessing of Abraham to anybody because sinful humanity cannot obey it. If obtaining the promise comes about ultimately by obeying the law, nobody obtains the promise. That's what the old covenant with Israel is there to show, as we'll find later in verses 19 and 20. That is Israel's place in the plan of God to prove our need, humanity's need, for divine justification by faith alone. To make undeniably clear to us our need of justification by grace through faith alone, apart from doing the works of the law. The big deal in the Bible is justification by faith. That's the big deal in the Bible. That's the big deal for humanity. We get obsessed with the end times. The big deal in the Bible is justification by faith of all who believe, regardless of what nation they're from. That's what the Bible makes into the big deal. That's what's so earth-shattering and epic about God's Word. Not that everything is going to end. Of course that's going to happen. It's that people are justified by grace through faith in Christ and that all people from all nations who have faith in Christ, they're actually the descendants of Abraham. That's the whole point here. That's the big reveal with which we now have to go back and watch the whole movie. Right? Salvation is the fulfillment of Abraham's promises. Why else has Paul brought Abraham into this argument? Paul quotes Leviticus 18.5 and verse 12. The law is not of faith. The terms of the law are the one who does them shall live by them. That's the terms. They're unavoidable. Which also means the one who doesn't do them dies. Israel was already in a covenant relationship with the Lord in Leviticus. But Paul is citing that verse to highlight the fact that that relationship was conditional. To remain in the promised land under the old covenant was conditional, conditioned on obedience to the law. That's why the old covenant comes with blessings and curses. They had to obey it. Not to trust in another to obey it for them. That wasn't an option. So Paul highlights the human problem with the law covenant. We can't obey it. The problem of the nature of the law itself, it can't provide salvation. And the problem of the fact that now that Christ has come, that covenant is old. Jesus is what makes it old, right? It's the old covenant now. It's part of the old age, not the new. The new age is characterized by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of every new covenant believer in the community. And because Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant and brought it to an end, the sacrificial system is now no longer in place. Which means if you want to try to become right with God under the terms of the old covenant, obeying the law, you'll have to be perfectly obedient. 
or you'll perish. And it's evident, Paul is saying, that no one could do that. So why go back to it? Who has bewitched you? Who made you think that was a good idea? This this is what he's arguing. That This is why Paul says later in 5.3 that if anyone even just required circumcision, if you just required that, that obligates a person to keep the whole law. Right? They are a package deal as a means of righteousness and identity in the people of God to Paul. You pick circumcision to identify you, you got to take the whole law to make you right before God. You pick the whole law to make you right before God, you got to be circumcised. It's a package deal. So now that Christ has come, it's a package deal. All law or all grace. Those are our options. To turn back to the old covenant now, to do anything for us, now that Jesus Christ has come, is according to Paul in chapter 5 verse 4, to fall away from grace. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Beloved, from the need to be justified by doing. Now how did he do that? By becoming a curse for us. By taking on himself the punishment we should have gotten because we do not do the law. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We are under a curse. The law was killing all of us. But Christ redeemed us, all who believe, by standing in our place. He endured the righteous, just curse of the law for us. He let it kill Him when it should have killed us. He was our substitute. He took the penalty we deserved because we are disobedient. God redeemed Israel from their slavery in Egypt. We were not under Egyptian bondage. We were under something even worse than that. That all humans are under. Bondage to sin and therefore cursed by the law. No exceptions. But Christ has come brought about the new, the ultimate exodus through His death and resurrection to buy us back. And through faith in Him alone are we redeemed. Anybody in this room that will believe is justified completely and made right with God and belongs to His people. No exceptions. No qualifications. So that, in verse 14... Through faith in Him alone we are redeemed, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That was the whole point. So that, see two so that's there? So that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Christ died so that the promise to Abraham that people from all nations would be blessed might be fulfilled by believing in Him. That's why Paul identifies himself and Gentile believers here as we. You see that? They are now the people of God. They are where that promise is being proven and fulfilled. There are two results of Christ's redeeming death for those who believe here. Gentiles, non-Jewish peoples, receive the blessing of Abraham, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And beloved, in verse 14, for Paul, receiving the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of the promises given to Abraham. That's his point. We are in the age of fulfillment. 
God is blessing Jews and Gentiles who trust in Christ with his promised Holy Spirit. Abraham's family is growing like God said it would. The God in whom we trust keeps every promise he makes. We must have faith in Christ in order to have a right standing with God. Not faith and, but faith, period, full stop. Good works are the result of a right standing with God. They are not the basis of a right standing with God. Ever. Ever. There's a new doctrine being propagated now by... There are so many parachurch organizations and and because of the internet and so much just talk and, and there's this new doctrine being propagated and accepted because people get bewitched by it by many in the seminary world that, that we are justified by faith alone, yes, but we're actually finally saved by a mixture of faith and works. It's, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Eternal life and justification in Paul are inseparably linked. Right? There's, there's, if you're justified, there's eternal life. How, how do you know that? You, you, you just read. Like, you just read and believe the sentences. But we get bewitched. We get bewitched. Trust Christ alone for your right standing with God. Never yourself. Never yourself. Again, trying to earn favor with God through your works will result in what Blake White calls one of two errors. Self-love or self-hate. Right? You'll either become convinced that you're righteous or you'll realize you're not and you'll hate yourself. You become a Pharisee or you commit spiritual suicide if you try to make yourself right with God by any way but Christ alone. Satan bewitches us. He's behind it. He always has been. This is what the enemy does. He bewitches us. He pushes us. You see, not even Satan was dumb enough in the Garden of Eden to pretend there was no God. That was not the way he argued. He argued by saying, did God really say? And he's been doing it ever since. Can you really be justified by faith alone apart from works? Come on now. There's too much scripture to the contrary. That's how the enemy argues. It wouldn't be bewitching if it, if it didn't have teeth on it. He pushes us to get our worth from our performance. To get our identity from our works. That's why the preaching of the gospel and Christ alone have fallen out of favor. And they have, I'm telling you. Don't, don't believe it just because I say it. Just the preaching of Christ alone and the gospel have fallen out of favor. Pe- people leave churches because, uh, yeah, I, I, I need more of like a life coach type. That's, that's not who Jesus is. It's not who I am. Right? It, it, they've fallen out of favor because the enemy is distracting us from the gospel by indulging our love for the world and by indulging our desire to earn our salvation by our works. So yeah, we, that's, that's how I see it. You know, that, that's, so I'll, we'll preach nothing but Christ crucified here six ways from Sunday. That, that's, it takes one wrong sentence to get you to doubt him. Right? Like, one wrong sentence. And like, if you're gonna stumble, I'd rather have you stumble into too much grace. Life and death are at stake when we gather here. 
Believe that with me. Believe that with me. That's what's really at stake in the church. That's what matters. That's where the fight is. Don't get distracted, beloved. Don't do it. Don't get distracted. There are a thousand other things that will make you feel like they're important. And in their own way, several of them are. But don't let anything ever make you think that this is where the lines are drawn. This is where it matters most. There are two ways to live. Faith or law. One way says, my hope is built on nothing less or more than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That way saves. The other way says, the one who does them shall live by them. That way kills. If you say, I'd, I'd rather... I think I can earn God's approval by myself if you just give me the right instructions and give me the chance. Or, if you say something like the false teachers were saying, oh, absolutely, you need Christ to do a lot for you. You need Christ to do a lot for you. Almost everything. But there are just a few things you need to make sure you do. He's 99%, you're 1%. No, no, you'll die. You'll die. I don't want any of you to die on my watch. We're not going to have it. Listen to this quote from... This is a church historian. This is what he... Named Richard Lovelace. This is what he came about through his research. Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Many have so light an apprehension of God's holiness and the extent and guilt of their sin that consciously they see little need for justification. Right? It becomes burdensome to hear. Although below the surface of their lives they are deeply guilt-ridden and insecure. Many others have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, but in their day-to-day existence they rely on their sanctification for their justification drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. Few know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Martin Luther's platform, you are accepted, looking outward in faith and claiming the holy alien righteousness of Christ as the only ground for acceptance. If you back me into a corner and said, what is the number one problem facing the church in America? This is my opinion. It is mixing sanctification with justification. It's it's getting the two mixed up. By faith in Christ, you are completely forgiven. You are completely righteous. By the Holy Spirit, you will do good works. It will happen. No need to measure and terrify one another. And therefore, fully accepted by God. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Let Him do it all. You'll be fine. All right? Let's sing the closing hymn together.
I'm going to pray. I'll be down in front. If you need to know Jesus Christ this morning, you felt it stirring in your soul. That's not coming from you. That's coming from Him. So if, if, if you want to come and call out to Him for your salvation, come. If you want to join our church, come. If you need to pray, come. I'll be here. All right, I'll be here. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for this time that You've given to us this morning. Lord, I thank You for Your perfect Word, Your perfect Son, Your perfect Spirit from you, the perfect Father. And Lord, I pray that we would believe this word. Lord, give us the minds that hunger to follow Paul's arguments, to trace them through. They're there for a reason, Father. It's all there for a reason. And we can agree to disagree on many things, but not on what makes us right with God. We can't. There's one way to see it. There's one way to see it. So, Father, I pray that everyone in our church, I pray that everyone in Moundsville, See it and embrace it and believe and be saved. I pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.